Welcome to Servants Church. Uh, it's good to be here. So we are going to continue in Luke's gospel. I don't know if there's any wagers about how long it's going to take me, but the office banter is that it's going to be a long time for me to finish Luke's gospel. I reckon, I don't know, four more months, maybe? Okay. Maybe the rest of this year, I don't know. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, and we're going to, Lord willing, look at the first 35 verses of Luke chapter 7. So if you want to turn to Luke 7, that would be great. And I just want to start by reading one of the verses in Luke 37, Luke 37, and Luke 7. One of the verses in Luke 7, and then I want to pray, and then we'll get into it together. This is Luke 7, 28, Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Father, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us today to understand the great privilege of having you as our God, of having you as our ever-present help. Lord, and I pray that as we look at this section, as we look at how your son interacted with just really radically different people in different circumstances, all to, to remind us of this fact. Help us to believe. Help us to believe that you are indeed our ever-present help. That Jesus, you're our helper. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. So Luke chapter 7. It's, it's, a, it's a really important section because what you have is Luke wanting to start to kind of get the reader to think about what's the right response to this Jesus? How, how do we respond to this Jesus? And, and I have to say, one of the, 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 my favorite sections in all of Scripture is the last bit of this section we're going to look at today and seeing John the Baptist and the things that he wrestled with at the end of his life. And, and what I love about this is that is that. Luke wants us to see that we can trust, we can believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed God's chosen king. And that we can believe that it's, he's not just a king that's kind of distant or someone who will rule someday. He rules in our lives today. And the rule he brings to our lives is practically good and helpful. The, the Lord wants us to see God has presented himself to his covenant people in both the Old and New Testament as the God who helps those that are his. He wants to help us. And, and the Jews who would have read this, the Jews of the first century who would have heard Jesus preach, they believed that God was a help to those that were his. They just thought they were the only ones who were going to be his. And so Jesus today, in wanting to show himself a helper to various kinds of people and various circumstances, shows us that, guess what? He's an ever-present help. Our God is an ever-present help to any of us who are willing to receive it. So let's look at the first of the three characters we're going to look at today. First, we want to look at the centurion and learn through, through his example how Jesus helps those who trust his authority. Verse 1 of chapter 7. After Jesus had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, that's the sermon on the plain that we talked about a couple weeks ago, he entered Capernaum. 
And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death and who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, with uh, him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, what's interesting about this is when he says, our synagogue, when these leaders here, don't think elders as in the Pharisees or religious leaders. These are more like civic leaders, more local leaders from Capernaum. And so when, when, they, when they say, Jesus, you should help the centurion guy, you should help this, this kind of captain of the Roman guard who would be over 100 soldiers, you should help him because he deserves this, because he helped us build our synagogue. And this idea of our synagogue in per- Capernaum is probably the, the kind of home synagogue that Jesus would have preached at all the time. And so you get the sense that they're kind of saying, Jesus, this is a good guy. And he was a good guy. There's no doubt about it. When it says that he, um, when it says that he basically helped build their synagogue, it means he probably helped fund it. He, he was a, probably a very uh, wealthy man, a generous man to the Jews. And this is something that we see recorded throughout history, uh, throughout the first century, that it was very common for Roman, uh, for Roman citizens, for those Gentiles that were uh, uh, high up in, in, in Roman culture or in Roman authority, to actually give generously to the Jewish community because they felt like, well, this promotes morality, this promotes uh, stability. It's a good thing to do. And so the Jewish leaders, they're going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you should help this person. And what happens? Verse 6, and Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting because what do the Jewish leaders say? What do the civic leaders say? Hey, Jesus, this guy's worthy for you to help. But what does this guy say? Lord, I'm not worthy. What's happening here is not so much that that, um, uh, this God-fearing man, this person who who had respect for the God of Israel, it's not that it's good with the good things that he did. He's just not trusting in them. He's just assured of the worthiness of God. He's assured of the worthiness of Christ and saying, Lord, if you're going to help me, it's not because I deserve it. If you're going to help me, it's simply because you're good and you can do it. And so this is important that we see the centurion, even though he did some good things, he's not trusting in his own worthiness. But what does it say? The second part of verse 7. But he says to Jesus through his friend, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And we read this and we think, okay, what's he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about here is the centurion, a a, a captain of the Roman guard, over a hundred men, he understands authority. And so when he says, I too am under authority, he's saying, Jesus, I recognize you are under authority. Specifically, The centurion is recognizing that Jesus exercises God's authority. So here he is, someone who hasn't even necessarily formally embraced Judaism, though probably has great respect and awe for the God of Israel. Kind of like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Luke obviously wrote both books and there's a parallel here. 
But he respects God. He fears God. He knows that the God of Israel is, is probably the true God. And yet he gets something that we'll see in a minute even the, the, the Jews of his time didn't seem to pick up. He saw that Jesus was exercising the very authority of God. And he knows how authority works. He knows that the authority, that the centurion recognized, authority is exercised through commands. If you have authority, you say what you want, and guess what happens? It gets done. That's how it works. Now, this is important because this is, this is, there's something here that might be hard for our modern ears. Because us, as modern, what most of us Western Christians... We don't like the idea of authority. We push back against that. It's something that kind of stumbles us. And I want you to remember that and be honest about that because we're going to come back to that at the end. But suffice it to say, the centurion did understand how authority works. If you have authority, you give a command and that thing gets done. And he's recognizing Jesus is exercising God's authority so that he can even say to sickness, be gone and it's gone. So when he says this, what, how does Jesus respond? Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now this is interesting. Luke doesn't kind of record for us Jesus saying the servant will be made well. He only records Jesus marveling at the centurion's faith. Not because Jesus didn't actually heal him. He did. That's the implication. The reason that Luke focuses on this is because he wants us to see. In fact, listen, in the Gospels, there's only three times when we see that Jesus marveled at something. That is like he was wowed by something. Almost only three times and all three times it was in regard to faith or the lack thereof. And so, when the gospel writers say Jesus marveled, it's like a big neon sign that says, listen to this, pay attention. What wowed Jesus? And what wowed him here is that there's a, a, a Gentile who believes what the Jews were actually resisting, which was God's authority being exercised through him. He, he was blown away by this. Jesus looked at this and just said, wow, this is great. I can imagine him beaming ear to ear when he said it. Because he wasn't really trying to dig at the, at the Jews so much as he was just wanting to say, this is, this is what pleases me. This is what I'm looking for. You guys have heard the scripture before, right? In the book of Hebrews, where Hebrews says, and without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's funny because I find there's a lot of us who don't have a problem with the first bit, yes, God, I know you're real. But we do struggle to believe the second bit. He wants to reward us. That he's pleased to reward our faith. That we actually can go to Jesus and say to Jesus, Lord, say the word and it's done. We can have that sort of confidence. And it's not going to be done because I've been such a good person and I've given to the church and I've supported the synagogue, so to speak. It's going to be done because, Jesus, you have that kind of authority. 
See, Jesus helps those who trust in his authority. Guys, this is what should move us to pray. I have to be honest. The thing that grieves me most, there's a lot of things that make me incredibly happy and thankful and just privileged to, to, to help lead this church. But one of the things that grieves me is how little evidence there is that we depend on God in prayer. And this is not to guilt us into prayer meetings, but gosh, I know I keep bringing this up, but it's crazy to me that we get week after week no prayer requests. Now, maybe that's because you guys are just, you know, you're at home, you're praying in your closet, and God's doing great things. Please, I hope I'm included in those prayers. But I, I wonder sometimes if it's just that we like, well, God, I know you're there, but I don't know if you're really going to do anything. Instead of having a faith that pleases God, that says, Lord, I trust in your authority. You say the word, and it's done. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about just praying for things. Now, you guys know the testimony of, of how we got healed crust and, and, and basically how God was challenging me to expect more in prayer and, and actually prayed. And the day that I prayed, the building was offered to us. It's in my journal. I can show you. Lord, okay, I, I, I want to expect more from you. So I'm asking that you would provide us a building so we have a base. And that evening, I talked to the, one of the leaders at the church who said, we're, we're willing to just give you the building. Started the process. But you know, that's kind of easy to pray for stuff like that in one sense. Or it's, it's easy to go, God, you can do that. It's exciting because then you go, oh, there's a real building, something you can touch and feel. What about saying, God, you have the authority. You say the word and I can walk away from this sin. Lord, you say the word and I can love this person in my life that I find hard to love. Say the word, Lord. See, Jesus wants to help us if we're willing to take him at his word. Well, then Luke takes us past the centurion and, and shows Jesus going to a place called uh, Nain for ministry. He doesn't tell us why, but he meets someone on the road. Verse 11. Soon after, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, or as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when he saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Now, I, I want you to think about this, because that, Jesus saying that's a little bit inappropriate, let's be honest, you know. If you see a, a bunch of people walking into a cemetery, all dressed in suits with their heads down, maybe sunglasses on, are you going to walk up and say, hey, don't weep? No, that would be completely inappropriate. Please don't ever do that. But Jesus does this, listen, because in saying, do not weep, he's in a sense saying to her, I'm about to work. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to act. Now, now here's what's amazing. It, 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 we have to kind of think about this. We, we need to feel the helplessness of this woman's situation. So, so being a widow, that means she doesn't have, in that culture, she did not have a husband to take care of her. This is a big deal. 
It's a big deal now to, to lose your spouse. It's a big deal now to lose that maybe if, if, if you're, the spouse was, that was lost was the livelihood. That would be a big deal now. But then it would be devastating. There was no sort of public safety net. Your safety net was your oldest son who would have a cultural responsibility to make sure you were taken care of. And so here, here she is, a widow lost the man she loved who took care of her. Now her oldest son who was taking care of her is gone. This is a big deal. This is not just the sadness of death. This is the point of destitute, of being, desti being completely destitute and not being able to take care of yourself. And so when Jesus sees this happening, he says, don't weep. I can imagine her going, who are you? But he says this, and then what happens in verse 14? It says that then, then he came and he touched the, the buyer, which is kind of like a, it's not like a coffin. Some of your versions say coffin. It's more like a big wick, wicker open basket that the body sits on top of. But maybe they, they, they do this pretty quickly in Jewish culture, less than a day after the body's died. And they anoint it so it, it kind of slows down the decay and they put it in the spire and they, they walk it to where it's going to be buried. And so everyone would see this as a dead body and everyone would know that this family's mourning. And of course, in Jewish culture, and according to, to even scripture, if you touch a dead body, you're defiled ceremonially. So people would try to not do that. Only those who carried it would be close relatives who would be kind of an exception. But Jesus goes up there and he purposely touches the buyer. And I can imagine everyone's going, what is this guy doing? And then he does something that would be incredibly useless if any of us did it. He says, listen, and he said to the, he said, young man, I say to you, arise. First he says, don't weep. Then he touches the, the, the buyer. Then he says to the dead young man, arise. And what happens? The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, this might not be so obvious to you or to, to me at first reading, but to a Jewish person who would read this, they would know exactly what he's saying. Because basically, in the Greek, this is the exact phrase that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament when Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead and, and says, now gives this, the son to the mother. In other words, what, what Luke's trying to show is he had this, this the, a power of Elijah, that there is this, this kind of prophet that's coming, that, that Jesus had that kind of power. But also what's amazing about this is that, is that Jesus is doing something that would be absolutely useless. His technique is useless unless he has the authority of God. So this is one of the, one of the things about sort of... Um, what we call the prosperity gospel, what the kind of, a lot of the kind of stuff that we see on religious television. And this idea that people just kind of claim, they, 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 you're even, you can even be taught, if you go to certain churches, you can be taught that say, just visualize what you want and claim that, believe that's yours. And they kind of put a lot of emphasis on that technique because they see, well, this is kind of what Jesus did. And he told us, if we have faith, we'd, we'd say this mountain be gone and be gone. And so they kind of, they, they focus on the technique. But the issue is not the technique. It's not necessarily wrong to pray, be gone, or to, to pray directly at something. It's not necessarily a wrong technique. But the power is not the technique. The power is Jesus who's saying it. See, when Jesus speaks, listen... His, his word, the word of Jesus, listen, it overcomes death. 
See, Jesus has compassion on this woman. And what does he do? Did he just go, oh, that's sad. No, he acts. And in his action, how does he act? He speaks and his word overcomes death. Luke wanted us to see this. See, what happens when you're dead? What can you do when you're dead? Nothing. <laughs> you're utterly helpless. But when God speaks to us, even in our deadness, what happens? Life. Death is overcome. And so, of course, this happens in, in all those people. They're in this village. According to verse 16, they go from fear to worship. It says, fear sees them all. And this is that, that kind of fear of like when something unexpected happens, you, you're like shocked to see it. Fear sees them all, it says. And they glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all, or, or, all the surrounding country. Now, it's important that we recognize that their view of Jesus here is not wrong. It's just incomplete. Jesus is a great prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Just like Jesus is a great king, but he's more than a king. He's prophet, priest, and king. He's Messiah. There's something unique about who Jesus is. But they're not wrong. It's just incomplete. And it's also important for us to recognize that their response here, that the people's response to this work of Jesus, this response of praise, the response of man, God's doing something great, is appropriate. One of the reasons I think we get discouraged in prayer is because we will give a prayer request. God might even answer, and so we feel better, but we, we, we quickly go and think about the next problem. Instead of taking time to go back and say, God, praise you. Thank you, Lord, for doing such a good thing. Praise you, Lord, for, for, for answering that prayer, for taking care of, of, of that thing that we asked you to take care of. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you to say the word and it's done. See, Jesus doesn't just help those who trust his authority. Jesus helps those who recognize their own helplessness. This widow recognized, man, she was helpless. This, this, her son was even more helpless. But Jesus helped them. He met them where they're at. And so we've seen that there's a centurion, there's this widow who's lost her only son, and now we get to a character that we wouldn't think would seem to need too much help. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And we see him in a situation where he's wrestling with doubt. In verse 18, it says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. That is, the disciples go back to John and say, John, this Jesus guy is raising people from the dead. And John, calling two of his disciples to him. Now, you should know this too. John's in prison when this is going on. So John's in prison. So he calls two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, now recognize this, okay? That, that what John's doing here is he's not doubting God's promise to send his chosen king. He's just wondering if Jesus is it. He's confused about what he should expect of God's chosen king. And so in his confusion, he, he goes to Jesus, or he sends people to Jesus saying, am I seeing this right? Are you actually the Messiah? 
And so what happens in verse 21? In that hour, he healed many of people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered and said to them, he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, now what Jesus is doing here, and even, and even saying these things, the, the fact that he did these things is important, but even the way he's kind of laying out what the things were that he did, he's actually, in a sense, quoting from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And what he's saying to John, is say, he's sending the message back to John the Baptist. He's saying, John, you remember what the Isaiah the prophet said about the Messiah? These guys can tell you, I'm doing that stuff. I'm doing all the things that the Messiah was meant to do. In other words, listen, when G- John doubts, Jesus answers with, check out the evidence. Check out the evidence. Remember what the scripture says and remember what I have done. Now, this phrase he uses at the end to, to bring back to John is a phrase important to us. And this is what I was referring to. And I was talking earlier about we kind of have a problem with God's authority. You know, the idea of authority is, is a bit of a stumbling block for us. Because what what Jesus is saying to John here is he's saying, listen, um, he's saying, um, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Literally, he's not scandalized by me. He's not tripped up by me. And what he's getting at by this is saying, listen, he's saying, John, I know you had certain expectations as all the Jewish did, Jews did, that, that the Messiah, God's chosen king would come and he'd deliver us from all oppression. And they were thinking, Roman oppression. They were thinking military power. They were thinking you should do this. And there's also probably something with John the baptizer for sure because his ministry as a, as, a, as a preacher of repentance and calling people to actually turn from their wicked ways. Remember, that's why he's in jail. He called Philip, the, the, the patriarch. He says, listen, you, you're, the, the woman you're, you're married to is wrong. You shouldn't be married to her. You're in sin by doing this. And, and so, you know, they chucked him in the jail for that. And he's probably wondering, okay, Jesus, you're a little nicer than I thought the Messiah would be. Well, why aren't you dealing with people's sinfulness right now? And so his expectations put him in a place where he's kind of going, man, is this, am I really doing, the, am I really following the right Jesus, the right Messiah? Am I really believing the right stuff? God, I, I do take you at your word, but I'm just wondering, maybe I got it wrong somehow. This is important for us to, to understand because, listen, this is what, what wrestling with doubts looks like. It's important for us to see there's a difference between doubt and unbelief, and we'll talk more about that uh, toward the end. But it's important that we see this is what doubt does. We, this is part of our walk with God. Part of our even ministry to God is, is, is learning how to wrestle with, am I getting this right? I think you say this, but I don't know. In fact, I'm quite suspicious when people are kind of like, I know I got everything exactly right. Do you? How long have you been doing this? Because I know for me, the longer I walk with God, the more I go, gosh, there's a lot of things that maybe I used to be really dogmatic about, I'm not so dogmatic about. And other things that I used to be, yeah, that's important. I realized, no, that's non-negotiable. 
And John was thinking, all right, God, you called me. You filled me with your Holy Spirit from my mother's womb. You called me out to the desert to seek you. You gave me a message. I preached the message faithfully. You brought many people to turn back to you. They were baptized with repentance. And, and, and I saw Jesus and I thought, man, this has got to be the Messiah. Behold the Lamb, I said, Lord, about Jesus. But now I'm wondering, did I make a mistake? Is he the right one? And Jesus says, don't be, don't be offended. Don't be scandalized when I'm not what you expected me to be. This is so important. Listen, we do need to expect more from God, but we don't need to try to squeeze God into our expectations. We need to believe God, take him at his word, that he wants to do the things he said to us he wants to do, but we need to make sure that we're not squeezing him into our expectations. Lord, you say the word, not me. I'm under your authority, you're not under mine. What do you want to do? How do you want to grow me? Now, here's what's amazing to me. Look at verse 24. It says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He says, then what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. In other words, did you go out to see just kind of some weird phenomenon or some weak uh, creature out there? He says, what did you go out to see? Verse 25, a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. In other words, you go out there to see someone who is famous and live in... High on the hog. He says, no, verse 26, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting from Malachi 3.1. Now, now, here's the thing I want you to notice in this context. John, Jesus sends John's disciples back to him to encourage him with, listen, you can, here's the evidence. I am the Messiah. I am the one that the scriptures promised. But when they leave, what does he do? He tells the crowd, now listen, don't lower your estimation, your esteem of John, because I haven't. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly encouraging. That when John is doubting, that doubt does not lower Jesus' estimation of him. Do you find that encouraging? Do, do, do you hear this and do you go, oh man, that's amazing that God's that patient with us? Or do you hear this and go, I don't know if that's true. I think it's wrong to doubt. Now if you're the latter, you need to be honest about something. You're probably more resembling a Pharisee than you are John the Baptist. And keep that in mind considering what Jesus says about John the Baptist in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, he then also says, as we read in the beginning, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How does this work? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying John is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, basically. And the reason Jesus is saying John is the greatest is because all the Old Testament prophets, the, 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 the core of their message was wait for the Messiah, wait for the Messiah, wait for the Messiah. There were specifics about that in the context of the cultures they were preaching in, but that was their general, 
the, the general message was God's going to provide a Savior. God's going to provide a Messiah. Wait for the Messiah. But John's message was, there's the Messiah. Not wait for him. He's right there. Behold the Lamb of God slain. What a great privilege. But Jesus says that you and I, the least in God's kingdom, are greater than him. You know why? Because we don't say, hey, that's the Messiah, and then wonder, is he the Messiah? We can look back now with divinity. We can know that this Jesus who lived and died and rose from dead and ascended to heaven and has sent his spirit and dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, he is alive. He is God's chosen king. We can know that for sure. Hallelujah. We can know that for sure. Listen, I know it's easy to doubt. And I know firsthand. The more I study, the more I struggle with doubts. Because the things that I was really assured of, sometimes I find out those things are more questionable than I thought. But the more I take those doubts to Jesus, the more I am sure Jesus is God's chosen king. That he's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He is worthy to be trusted and followed. Don't you love the fact that Jesus helps those who wrestle with their doubts? You don't have to hide from God when you're doubting. It's just the opposite. Go to Jesus with your doubts and say, Lord, I'm wrestling with this. I don't get it. I, I have prayed in recent days. I have prayed, Lord, I'm not sure if you're there but I know I have to believe that you're there and you're a rewarder of those that seek you because I, I know I just will wrestle with doubts. I have to believe you're there. There's no reason I can't believe you're there. Lord, help me. I've been that honest with God. And you know what happens when I go to God with my doubts? I go back to his word. My faith gets restored. It's just not that all my questions get answered, but my faith gets restored. Lord, I, I know I can trust you. John the Baptist, I'm convinced, when he was beheaded, he, he was so in faith. He received that same, I know who my Messiah is. Now here's what's interesting as well. After Jesus says this, he says in then verse 29, it, 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 in most of our Bibles it's in parentheses, verses 29 and 30 in parentheses. And it says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having uh, been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now, now here's what Luke's doing. Luke's, listen, Luke is kind of contrasting the kind of common Israelite who did see John as, as a prophet, who did respond to John's message of, uh, of a baptism of repentance to to turn back to God. They saw that, and when, so when, when Jesus says these things about John, they go, yeah, amen. And when they say they declare God is just, what they mean by that is God was right in calling us to repentance. But the Pharisees struggled with this. They struggled with being called to repentance. They struggled with the idea that, that they would be weak and needing to start fresh. And so Jesus gives this sort of parable, okay, in verses 30 and 30, 31 and 32. He gives this parable. You might call this the parable of the bratty children. 
He says in verse 31, To what then shall I compare this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. In other words, you're kind of like kids who are like, I don't want to play that, I want to play this. Okay, let's play this. No, I don't want to play that, I want to play this. You're, you're like bratty children. No matter what we do, you say, no, that's not what we wanted. He's saying this is what it's like for the Pharisees. This is what it's like for those who didn't receive both John and Jesus. He explains this, verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and, sis, and sinners. Yet wisdom, Jesus says, is justified by all her children. In other words, what Jesus is saying, listen, you guys can be these bratty children, but the truth is that the people who received that call of God through John the Baptist to repent, have a baptism of repentance, and the people that have received me as Messiah, they're going to justify the wisdom of God. They're going to show that God was wise in his plan for mankind. You see, there's a difference between John's doubt and that generation's unbelief. Unbelief is when we refuse to take God at his word. We don't listen to what he says. We don't take Jesus for who he's presented himself to be. And we try to squeeze God into our expectations. That's unbelief. See, we tend to think of unbelief like atheism because that's the predominant way unbelief is manifested in secular Western Europe. But actually, unbelief isn't just atheism. That's part of it. That's an expression. of Unbelief is when we just say, God, I want you to be this way. In fact, often when you talk to atheists, in fact, if you're watching this today and you are one of those atheists, well, let me ask you, what God don't you believe in? Because you're probably describe a God who I don't believe in either. A God who doesn't exist. The God that we're called to believe is the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who showed himself through Jesus. That's the God we trust. Unbelief is, I just don't want to believe him. I don't want to trust him. I don't want to believe he exists or that he'll do what he says. Well, that is our choice. We can choose to unbelieve, but it doesn't change who God is. Whereas doubt is when we're going, God, I believe you're there, and I believe that you, you, you are who, you, who you've shown yourself to be in Jesus, but I don't get how this works because it doesn't seem to be working for me right now. And I need you to help me. I need you to help me. And Jesus says, I'll help. Because Jesus helps those who trust in his authority. Jesus helps those who recognize their helplessness. Jesus, listen, he helps those who wrestle with doubts. He's God's proof that he's an ever-present help in time of need. And we're going to prepare our hearts to remember this Jesus in communion at the Lord's table. And, and, and what I want us to do before we go to the Lord's table together, I want to take some time, just a, f a couple minutes for us to, to respond 
to what God might be saying to us today. I want to ask you some questions that you can, I want you to think about. I want you to think about these questions. I want you to answer these things before the Lord. These are things that that I'm encouraging you to turn into prayer. Like the centurion, are you willing to take Jesus at his word? If you never read his word, you're not going to have a hard time taking him at his word. Now, don't be ashamed of his words. His words are spirit and life, he said. His word is like more important than our necessary food. The words of Jesus are things that we are not to be ashamed of, but to build our lives upon. Will you be like the centurion and take Jesus at his word? Will you believe that if he says it, boom, it has power? Like the widow. Maybe even like your son, do you recognize your own helplessness until God speaks? See, one of the reasons we don't go to God for help is because we think we're not helpless. I do it myself. First phrase out of my kids' mouths. I do it myself. Every little toddler I've ever seen has that kind of attitude. Me, mine, I do it myself. Why? We think we can do more than we can. Or when God calls us to do something, we think there's no way I could ever do that. Both are us focusing on us instead of looking to him who is our help. Like John the Baptist, are you willing to go to Jesus with your doubts? Are you willing to reconsider the evidence afresh? Are you willing to go back to the scripture and see what it says about Jesus? Are you willing to to maybe investigate, uh, maybe for the first time, or again, the claims of, of the trustworthiness of Scripture as a historical document, the claims of Jesus as the Messiah, the, the, the evidence around the reality, historical reality of his bodily resurrection. Are you willing to go back to some of that evidence? Because here's the truth. Jesus wants to help you. And he wants to teach you to help others. Maybe this week, maybe even this afternoon, you're going to have a chance to take someone to Jesus' word. Someone might ask you a question, and, and the, the Holy Spirit might remind you of something that Jesus said. And you can say, hey, can I show you something? Here's what Jesus says. Or, or maybe you just look at someone and you think, man, they're just they're dead to this. They don't want to have anything to do with this. But in faith, you speak what God says and God uses that to bring life. Or maybe you just, you get alone with God and you say, Lord, I'm struggling, I'm doubting. I believe, help my unbelief. And let the Lord meet you where he's at. We, we believe that this same Jesus who did these things to help also finished his race by dying on the cross as a substitute for us, paying a debt that we couldn't pay, and rising from the dead so that God could declare us innocent before him. He paid it all. 
we're going to together as one family, we're going to remember who our Lord is and declare our need and our reception of his help. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. Lord, that we don't just have to take the psalmist's word for it, but we can see how you pierced history and that you're an ever-present help, not just for the Jew, but the Jew and the Gentile, to the whosoever will believe in you. Oh, Lord, we need your help, and we want to remember how you provided that help, how you made it available to us through your own death and resurrection, through your sinless body that was broken, through your perfect blood that was spilled, Lord. You made a way for us to be forgiven. You made a way for us to have a perfect relationship with you, an intact and forever relationship with you. You made the way. You are the way. And so, Lord, we, we just want to say, help us. And we believe, Lord, that the work that needed to be done is already provided for through Jesus, and we want to proclaim his death until he returns. So, Lord, as, as a family, as those who have been made into a family because of what Jesus has done, we want to do this now in remembrance of you. Let's partake. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. He's an ever-present help in time of need. You can go boldly to his throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I know you probably feel helpless and I know you've doubted before as I have, but just know the Lord is with us. God bless you. We'll see you next week.